You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello again, David Salem here. Happy to be back on Real Vision to explore with my good friend Andrew McDermott a question that I find endlessly interesting. Given the freedom that Andrew has enjoyed since setting up his own money management firm 10 years ago, why has he kept his own capital and his clients invested more or less exclusively in Japanese stocks? So without further ado, let's get right into it with Andrew. Uh, Andrew, thank you very much for doing this. Great to be here, David, and um, I'm excited to to have this conversation again. We've been having it off and on for 10 years, uh, and uh, it never gets old. Yeah. Well, as I noted in my intro, since you left Southeastern to set up your own shop uh, a decade ago, you've kept your own capital and your clients invested more or less exclusively in J. Hand. And to call that a non-consensus or contrarian stance would be uh, would be understatement, to say the least. So here's the question I want to start with. In your considered opinion, what do global investors as a group get most wrong about Japan? I would say that as a group, they they focus more or, or perhaps too much on what Japan has done wrong and not enough on what Japan's done right. And to, to prevent extended monologuing, I, I'll break that up into, into three little segments or doors and you can pick which one we're gonna go through. But, but the first is, um, is, is really my least favorite, but the one that everyone spends the most time on, which is the macro. And I'll, I'll define that as politics and central bank and such. Um, the second, which is slightly more interesting, although I, I'm not a Japanophile by any means, I've, I've, I've left Japan twice in frustration. Um, I've been as frustrated as anybody in, in some management meetings. But nevertheless, I think this this the social element of, of Japan defined as, as kind of the habits that inform um, business practices. Um, I think that's another area where um we focus too much or our industry focuses too much on the bad and, and not enough on the good. And then, and finally, the area we spend our most time, um, the micro, the, the actual process of, of selecting Japanese securities relative to other Japanese securities and other options we have around the world. So I'll let you decide which way we're going to go. But those are the, I, I would say the, our punchline is that um, Japan's not perfect, but it's it rewards security analysis at the end of individual level, primarily because so few people do it because they get distracted by the negatives on the other side. Well, thank you. Um, sort of reminds me of the game show where they gave you three doors and you got to pick one to go through. So. Yeah. 
taking right. due note of the fact that I know well from conversations with you that it's of sort of least interest or frankly relevance to your portfolio construction to talk <laughs> about macro. Um, I know with certainty that that's of really keen interest to the Real Vision audience. Um, and it's important too in the longer term. So let's spend at least a few minutes up front going through that door and talking about the macro backdrop for investing in Japanese stocks. And by that, I mean the past, the present, and the future as you envision it. And, and you know, you can start wherever you want in the timeline. I might encourage you, Andrew, to focus since he's just left office and he was a pretty big elephant in the room for many years to talk about Abe-san and, and his legacy and how that relates to the big macro picture in Japan. Sure, and, and, and I don't want to understate the importance of the macro. It is critically important to us, but like you, we employ a negative screen, whether we're looking at companies or countries or, or employees. You know, we're looking for things that disqualify first. And for us as US dollar investors looking primarily at preserving the purchasing power of our own capital, not meeting whatever um, the flavor of the day is out there in the, in the money management universe, our expectations are simply, simply stated but difficult to achieve. And that's a government that more or less provides us um, with enough room to, to get ourselves in trouble in terms of security selection um, and a currency that more or less um, provides a stable unit of um, exchange. And, and I don't, uh, we can get into the currency wars, but our, our, our view is that in, in terms of these macro issues, both on the political and the monetary front, Japan is, for better or worse, and I think it's been mostly better, a junior partner of the U.S., so it's, 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 its choices are constrained um, in the political realm and the monetary realm, and they have broadly been consistent with what the U.S. is doing, and that's gotten um, a lot harder to, um, to support for all the reasons that have been talked about um, as we in this in real vision and others as, as this macro policy in the US has become more and more determined of individual security outcomes. But our experience both in the past and in Arabe has been that the macro leaves room for companies to operate. Um, and, and as an investor, my security selection is not determined by my knowledge of the politics or insight to monetary policy. That's why we don't worry about Japan day to day on at the macro level, but when we talk to other people, it's it's interesting um, because the negative case, the negative macro case in Japan, is the most dissonant. They're either doing too much or too little in the political or the monetary realm all the time. Um, their demographics, their debt, their um, you know policies towards towards women, towards minorities, towards um, foreign competition are endlessly debated. And the only thing that's consistent over the last really 20 years is they're always wrong. Um, and that, of course, is the equal and opposite reaction or to how things went from roughly the late 70s through, uh, through 1989, when they were always right, even though 
again, at this individual security level, there was a lot not to like um, in that period. So our, our view is that people endlessly debate the uh, people in our industry endlessly debate the macro because it gives them an excuse to not do the, the work of individual security analysis. And it also gives you a free pass because you can never really go back and track the performance of your macro discussions um, because there's so much evidence on each side. Um, now, I will say that there have been some distinct positives over this period, including the Abe period. I have a, I have a Tolstoyan view that um, you know, these political leaders don't dictate what's happening. They, 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 they surf the wave. And Abe is a great example because a lot of these so-called Abenomics things were not his policies his first time in power. Um, I think he quite wisely read the tea leaves of what was already happening in Japan that was broadly good for shareholders. And he made some of those policies his own. Um, but this endless debate over Abe's three arrows and whether they were good enough, whether they're hitting the target, I think that was a distraction from some much more important points. And, uh, and I don't want to, I'll, I'll be brief on these. The first one is the Bank of Japan. I'm not a central bank specialist. I don't spend a lot of time on it. The, there's, the, the math is too hard for me. But I will note that in 1989, December 26th, the Bank of Japan raised rates to 4.5%. It's interesting. They they looked at inflation of two and a half percent, and they were frightened by that. You know, the the U.S. in almost exactly the same situation last year blinked. You know, that decision to raise rates it obviously pricked the bubble. But in retrospect, it was incredibly important. Imagine the opposite. Imagine if they had had said, "Well, we've got to support asset markets, and we got to lower rates at and and keep the stock market, which at that time represented forty four percent of 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 global equities." Uh, was trading at stratospheric PEs. You know, you can't really compare <clears throat> today's PEs to those because they didn't have to consolidate um, financial statements. There was very little cash flow, but the stated PE was 60. The the real PE, I think, was a lot higher. And yet they made the decision that that obviously led to a, a big decline in, in, in equity prices that um, in some ways continues today. So, they let the market fail, um, but by doing so, they allowed the market to heal over time. And I think that's 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 a really important part of the narrative that we 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 sometimes miss. On the policy side, uh, we have experienced over the last twenty years increasing uh, transparency, lower tax rates, um, a move toward liberalized free trade. And, and I would say that, that Abe's most important contributions on that have been his leadership and the TPP and other um, multinational areas where Japan had always been viewed as a kind of an, an outlier and a, and a barrier builder when, when today they're, they're one of the foremost leaders in, in forging a free trade area. Um, they were early in identifying China as as both an enormous market opportunity, but but also a potential security threat. And I think Abe has been a, a real leader there. Um, and then finally, very quietly, and, and most importantly, they've managed uh, a, a change in 
social fabric that's been very difficult to, and we'll talk about this more in point in, in the second area, but but from a government policy, they've had to deal with these demographics, they've had to deal with all these this 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 decline in um, economic growth, and they've managed through immigration policies, through tourism policies, through infrastructure developments to really shift the economy uh, to accommodate those changes in a way that has not been nearly as disruptive as, as people thought. And so all of that's created this opportunity for, for companies to fix themselves. But Andrew, as a, as a segue to that, you just sort of complimented Abe for his leadership on certain issues. And, and I, I happen to agree. I also believe, and I think you agree too, but I want you to speak to the issue that, that their ginormous, um, pension fund, GPIF, the Government Pension Investment Fund, has been a real leader. And I don't mean just recently with, with its emphasis on stewardship, but really going back 20 years or so to when Yano ran the fund. And more recently, we've had Mizuno. But I know you have some views about the intersection and the interrelationship between GPIF, the Japanese stock market, BOJ and its investments in stocks, and the larger sort of topic du jour of active versus passive management. So take us down that road a little bit, because I think your views on that are quite unconventional and really interesting. Well, I'm glad you reminded me that, that is, that's something that I, I wanted to talk about, because um, you know Japan, Japan gives us a preview in 1989 of what a totally passive market looks like, because at that time, about 40% of, of shares were cross-held, meaning that either Japanese financial institutions or corporates held shares in their own uh, customers. And, and people view this as, as a kind of a distinctive characteristic of Japanese capitalism. It's really not. It was a recent development in the, in the middle of the Japanese economic boom. If you, if you want to see a, a vivid depiction of how ruthless capitalism was in Japan, I, I recommend in the immediate period after the free the, the war ended, I, I recommend Kurosawa's film, Heaven and Earth. It's all about a hostile takeover and so on. It happened in the 50s. It couldn't be more real. But you had the cross holdings and then you had um, within the pension and institutional investment industry in Japan, you have complete regulatory capture by the top three brokers, something that persists to today. And I think that has been really a debilitating feature of the Japanese market. And it's ironic because the people running those companies claim to be the most enlightened in a Western kind of business school sense. And yet there is no uh, equivalent of Scottish widows or even Allianz or, or any of the, the professional investment managers. There are in Japan, if you run the pension plan at a company, you're typically on a rotation through the finance department. You're going to spend three years there. You're going to be judge versus the index. The brokers are going to take you out a lot for dinner and you don't have a long-term track record to worry about. And then finally, foreign investors, both in the late 80s, when much like today, any pretense of, of real financial analysis had been thrown out the window and the only people still in were they spent a lot of time justifying why Japanese banks were six times books, but nobody believed it. It was it was a the ultimate flow over fundamental market. And and as that even as we go today, foreign investors continue to be the most active members in the Japanese market. 
traders, but that generally is part of a macro trade in which Japan is viewed, um, equities are viewed as a, kind of a an instrument where, that you trade against currencies or GDP or whatever the, the macro theme is. So you, you have this situation where man, it doesn't mean the capital wasn't allocated and the prices weren't um, found. It was just done, the management's had no oversight. And that I think had a big reason. It was a main major reason that capital allocation became so um, out of hand for so long at these larger companies. And the, but the, the person who really changed that um, was, was not an activist shareholder coming in from the outside. It wasn't private equity. It wasn't a bureaucrat for, or at least a politician. It was, it was Yano-san with the GPIF, which is a government pension fund they confronted the reality that they were going to have to actually sooner or later pay these pensions in real money. And without Japanese companies earning better returns, they weren't going to be able to meet their liabilities. So they, they did a couple of things. First of all, they, they adjusted the liability side by basically cutting benefits for, for everyone. And second, they professionalized the management of these pension plans. First, the part that the government held directly, and second, the part that companies had managed on behalf of the government for many years. And so taking that gigantic pool of capital in, they then set about putting some very broad active management goals in place. And those consisted of first, setting a minimum bar for return on equity and profitability, Second, in, in improving um, proxy voting, which had really not happened for, for most institutional investors in Japan. And third, insisting on kind of a, some basic governance reforms, outside directors, a little more um, you know, conflict of interest disclosure. And, and that really set the framework for um what had already been going on at the smaller companies, which was just basically a little more oversight of managements. And, and what we experienced early on was that Japanese companies that were not protected by these, this web of cross holdings and that were run by owner operators who maintained big shareholdings in the company, they had never fallen off the wagon. So we, they, they'd acted pretty intelligently all the way through. And what Yano's decisions and, and policies did is they really broadened the basket of securities that were acting that way. And that's, and I think the most important trend in Japan um, governance has not been the three arrows, but rather the, the gradual unwinding of these shareholdings so that today we're now in a position where most Japanese managements are accountable to shareholders who are exclusively interested in the performance of the share, not in some other non-economic variable. Um, and that to me is a very important counterweight um, to a lot of the other macro stuff that I think people focus on. Great, that's a great segue over to that. Let's go through that second door then. We'll call it the micro or company specific um, because whatever the macro backdrop, I mean, has been you and your, and your colleagues at Mission Value have shown that you can find individual companies that are capable of generating really pleasing risk-adjusted returns. So I would be interested, I think the audience would be too, if you could just talk about 
some of the specific names, the stocks you're holding right now, um, and what you see in them that, that, that causes you to want to be an investor long term in them. And maybe, Andrew, start with some of the smaller cap names that the audience are probably not familiar with, and then we can segue over and talk about some of the ones that they might have already heard about. Sure. I guess when we talk about what we, the securities we pick, maybe I'll spend one minute on, on why, what we're, what we're driven by, and, and that we're, we're driven exclusively by compounding our personal capital. And, and while we are right now 100% invested in Japanese equities, the, I have um, two very important partners in my business, um, in our business, Yohei Yamada, who's in Japan, and John Buford, who's in Memphis. And um, Mission Value Partners is really properly considered, it's it's the intersection of the securities that we want to own individually. And, and John worked with me at, at Southeastern. Um, he was there for 17 years. He's my mentor there. And when we started in 2010, he had a portfolio of 20 or so names that none of them were in Japan. Um, and he and I worked collaboratively on a number of um, ideas in and out of Japan. Um, but when I kept sharing, when I would share a name with him, if it were McDonald's or Nestle, that was pretty easy for us to do. If it were a company like Sazabi, which I'll talk about now, I'd give him a ticker. He'd try to, he'd look it up, couldn't pronounce it. And he would throw up his hands and say, well, look, when you just start a fund and then I'll invest in that and I won't have to go do all this stuff. So that really was what we're doing. But 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 whether it was McDonald's um, or, or Nestle or um, any of the 20 or so names that John had or these or Sazabi or Hitachi or Daichi Kosho, we're, we're looking for exactly the same thing. We don't compromise just because it's in Japan. And. For us, that means that we're you know, we want a high single-digit real return. We want no loss, no chance that we can lose capital. Which doesn't mean that we we won't, but but we will not go into a situation and say, well, 50% of these things are going to go to zero, but the other 50% are going to be 10 baggers, and so we're going to be fine over time. We we will give up that extra increment of return for the certainty that we're not going to lose money. And, and and when we say lose money, we define that in, in, in real terms. So it, it, it's not enough for it just to be $100 of cash at 50 cents. That that 50 cents has to be growing at least at that high single digit real rate so that we can afford to wait. So that's the the things that we like are things that meet that. And, and we personally can afford um, to live whatever we're going to, however we're going to live, as long as we don't lose permanent capital. And so we're not constrained or, or concerned about the the relative performance. We're absolutely concerned about the U.S. dollar performance. And that's what drives uh, you know, our, our security selection. It, it was reflected in our, our fee relationship with TIFF when we started. And um, it's, it's what we do. So these companies are not selected because of a view of, of Japan but rather because they meet those criteria. Um, perhaps that was too long uh, a preamble, but without further ado, I'll, I'll go into a couple, if that's okay. Yeah, please do. Yeah, it's great. Um, so sat, so at the time that we started Mission Value, uh, Japan was really on the outs. It was, you talk to people and they'd say, well, it doesn't matter whether it's cheap. These managements don't, don't get it. Um, or, and that would be a polite way that you'd hear a lot of other things too. Mm-hmm. And we would look at a company like Sazabi, which was trading. Sazabi was a little retailer, uh, a couple hundred million dollar market cap, but management owned a big chunk of it. They had 
because of their accumulated cash holdings or, or, or profitability over the over, over the decade before, they had a lot of cash. They also owned 40% of Starbucks Japan, so which was publicly listed. And when we bought the company on our own behalf and then and later on yours, it was trading at less than the value of its cash and securities. They were raising their dividend, they were buying back shares, uh, but there was no interest. There was one Wall Street analyst who followed the company. We would talk to them and and, and say, look, you know, you're, you've got all these, these assets that are much more valuable in your stock price. What are you going to do about it? And they said, we're doing everything we can, but nobody cares. Uh, and between the time that we started our firm and and the time when they announced an MBO where we're headed, I think we pers- we bought 75% of the volume. It was There was just no interest. Um, but this was happening at a time when the company, when, when Japan was supposedly, you know, dead money for, for investors. A group called Steel Partners, which had been an activist and acted on behalf of a lot of, of endowments, they were blowing up. They were liquidating every Wall Street Journal editorial you read was about how Japanese managers don't care about shareholders. And yet we saw these this contrary example. Here was a group that they had terrific assets. They did what they could, and then ultimately they bought us out at a at a at a decent premium. Now we fought that deal because three or four years later, SoftBank or um, Starbucks did exactly what we thought, which is buy in the rest of that business at a gigantic premium that was a multiple of the market cap of the company when it went public or private rather. But that was an example at a time when uh, we were told that Japanese managements do not care about shareholders that. That they that the actual managers acted um, rationally, and and it didn't matter what the stock market was going to do or doing, these these managers acted as you would expect them to do. And I guess that was our that's our central insight, which is there is no central insight. Japanese stocks making allowances for certain you know, for some cultural differences that are true in any any market, um, pretty much follow the rules that we that we use everywhere else. And, and that's, and that was a, an asset example. We had another that was more of a, you know, if, if you use the Graham Buffett continuum, that's, that's Graham. Then we had Daichi Kosho, which sells Kuroka machines, a terrible business in a declining demographic where no one's spending or, or so it appears. In fact, as that industry had consolidated from 13 players to two and they had, created a, a duopoly in which they had over 60% share. This was a, a, a real, um, it was a royalty stream on the music libraries that, that constitute a, a karaoke library. And more importantly, it was run by an owner operator who, who knew he had a great business. And so over the period, I've got my little uh, chart. This is a time when Japan was, was really in the doldrums and yet they grew their, their earnings I think a, a factor of five, they took their net cash and used it to pay dividends and to buy back shares. And they invested for 10 years in a, in a growth market. It turns out old people like to sing. So, so we started growing and um, selling karaoke machines to, to nursing homes. This all was happening at a time when, when Japan was becoming the smallest percentage of global markets as a on a market cap basis that it, that it really had ever, have ever reached. So we had those small examples and the, the portfolio was filled with those. Not all of them worked, but 
enough so that we we knew that this this generic narrative that Japan is a bad place for shareholders um, was was just not accurate. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, do you want to talk about um, Buffett's recent move into Japan, what that tells you? Because you wrote to me when you learned about it that you, you called it, quote, vintage Buffett. So, I might ask you, Andrew, to explain what exactly did you mean by that? And what does his recent move into Japan tell you about, about the environment in which he's decided finally to pull the trigger in Japan. I happen to know, and you can tell the audience, that you had a dialogue with him way back, almost 10 years ago in 2011, about Japan. So tell us that story and and, and then talk, if you would, about the, the particular stocks that he's now acquired on behalf of Berkshire. Yes. So we started MVP with the assumption that things can't get any worse in Japan. So that was 2010. And then, of course, we were that we were quickly things got a lot worse very quickly. We had uh, the so-called Olympus scandal, which is the one stock that people know about and which I was personally deeply involved in, both in my prior form and and um, and at MVP. And then you had the earthquake and the tsunami and um, the, the terrible tragedy at um, Fukushima. So earnings really did get worse. Um, not permanently, and we didn't, as you know, the day after the I, when I, I was there for the earthquake, but um, I got back that next weekend and we we called you and we put more money in um, the day the markets opened. Well, the other person who who came to Japan at that time in 2000 was was Buffett. They, Berkshire made its first small acquisition and he he made very clear that he was interested in doing more in Japan. Um, and we wrote him. We wrote him about the two stocks that I just mentioned, Daichiko Show and Sazabi. And we said, here, look, here's what we're seeing in Japan. Everyone says it's bad. We noticed you took a trip there. Um, we'd like to talk to you about it. And, 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 and every, every value investor writes Buffett to try to bail, you know, to, to <laughs> when they're in trouble. And uh, we've done that in the past. And, and, and what his genius is he has this culture of saying no, again, a negative screen. And I, we didn't expect to get a, get a reply. And we didn't uh, until when my colleague came in and he said, you're not expecting an email from Warren Buffett, are you? And I said, well, I'm not expecting one, but, but, you know, tell me more. And he said, well, I've, I've had one in my junk mail folder for, for a while. And um, it's probably a joke, but, and we read it and, and then Mr. Buffett said, well, look, I'm interested in Japan. Come see me. So we did. And, um, you know, I have on my wall a message from him that says that, that when uh, when I go to heaven, St. Peter's going to ask me whether we found a, a, a Japanese company for Berkshire, and that's going to be the key to whether we get in or not. So, um, you know, we, we went to meet him and um, got there early. He opened the door, offered us Coke, and we talked for Japanese equities for about Japanese equities for for an hour or so. And, you know, to put that in context, this is when Japan is, is hitting rock bottom. And he said, you know, I've never been to Japan. I haven't been there for 45 years, but I'm interested now. And um, let's let's talk. But the reason that this this uh, what he did was vintage Buffett in um, at least in buying this basket of of trading companies was that 
when he met us, he was not interested in public securities in Japan. He, he it was very clear about that. Um, but then he turns around and buys a basket of public securities in Japan. And he, he's because I would I would think and I haven't spoken to him about it. He would say, well, things changed um, in, the, in the same way that we are now in our portfolio migrating from the smaller cap companies like Sazabi and um, and Daichi Kosho to the larger cap ones like Hitachi or Mitsubishi Estate or Mitsui Fidosan, all of which we can talk about and all of which have they were really poster ch children for bad management in 1989 and have gone through this wrenching transformation and are today uh, really acting like owners, even though they don't have what we would consider traditional owners. That Buffett is he's a pretty smart guy. And he's he's saying, I think the balance of power, I think, I think he's saying a couple of things. First of all, the balance has shifted so that I can look at a broad swath of Japanese securities and be reasonably confident that from top to bottom, uh, these managers are, are going to on average make decent decisions. Um, and the second thing he did was buy a basket and say, but I'm not going to commit to any one of these because um, there's nothing dif different. There's, there's not that much of a, um, there's not a lot of value to be added in, in picking this particular management. What I'm trying to do is get broad exposure to Japan, broad exposure to commodities to get out of the U.S. dollar. And and I think to, again, looking at that negative screen to say, I feel OK about the macro situation in Japan, all things being all things considered. Um, and so there, there's so many things we learned from that. Um, First, not to be constrained by what you've said in the past if the facts change on the ground. Um, second, to go against the tide, obviously. And then third, from our perspective, uh, what's very interesting is that when we look at the companies he bought and compare them to what we own, uh, our market-weighted cap is about $5 billion, it's, it's clear that Size is is such a constraint for him, and and for so many, you know, what we are buying is is cheaper and probably I think preferable. I think he would probably be the first to say that, but it's just not easy to access in the way that when you've got hundreds of billions of dollars of, of investable assets out to, to put together. So we we see it as as a important not only in what he's doing but what he's not doing and he's not putting he's getting money out of the u.s financials uh, he's he's not investing in some of these other markets uh, no, most notably china at least not in a big way and and that to us speaks to almost an insurance mindset of of risk management as with the risk management with a coupon which is probably the best way to to think about what he's doing and in some ways what we're doing too so you mentioned a, a large cap name that I want to talk a bit, a bit about, and you and I have talked about it quite a bit over the years. Uh, but let me set it up with a little history. The name, of course, is Hitachi. But, you know, so as you and I have discussed, when I was in business school in the 80s, Japanese companies, you've already flagged this, to sort of do no wrong. Roll the clock forward to when you started your career in the late 90s. And Jack Welch is named Manager of the Century by Fortune magazine. And that was, I believe, in 1999. And I actually went back and tried to compute the total return on Hitachi and GE over two time periods, Andrew. One, the entirety of your career, 
uh, and that's a pretty big gap. That's about a hundred percent gap, which is 500 bips, 500 basis points annualized. And then over the shorter time period, about half as long since you launched mission value, Hitachi has outperformed GE total return now in U.S. dollar terms by 140%. So that's twice as big a gap, an annualized gap of more than 1,000 basis points. And so I, I cite those stats knowing that you've spent a lot of time on Hitachi, but you've also thought pretty long and hard about GE, the so-called GE model, and what a comparison of the two, what Hitachi has done over the course of your career in GE Sort of what lessons that teaches us as global investors about Japan, the U.S., and stock selection. So with that as a long wind-up, why don't you pitch any thoughts you have about those two companies? Sure. And, and we, we looked at GE as hard as we did at, at, at Hitachi. I mean, there was no, again, we have no constraints and geographic constraints in terms of what we, we, we buy. Um, and and so because of that, this is this is not. I'm not speaking as a Japanophile. We 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 could have easily bought GE and and not bought Hitachi. And and we didn't. It's only when you look seriously at a company and, and think about putting capital on, do you really pay attention to it. I mean, I've obviously been aware of GE forever, but we were we spent um, some serious time on on GE and the in the basic um, case was well. Um, you know, it's it's global heavyweight. It's going to earn two bucks a share. Stocks twenty two. Some of their businesses are are in um, you know are are under earning. But what's not to like? And that was you know that thesis has been broadly was broadly embraced by a lot of, of value investors even at the tail end. But by going in and doing the analysis of uh, which really didn't take that long, we we realized what a house of cards that company was and what a what a what a terrible job. Um, management, current management and prior management had had done, not just for for shareholders, but but really frankly for our country. We looked at GE and Hitachi um, as standalone investments. We did we could have easily bought GE rather than than Hitachi or or um, but obviously we ended up as owners of Hitachi and but but doing the work it really it opened a window um, on on this very interesting contrast of, of how these two companies have dealt with things in the last 10, 15 years. You know, they, they both came out of the financial crisis with, um, with a lot of challenges. And I think the way that GE handled those challenges and the way that Hitachi that, that handled those challenges really um, unfortunately tells you a lot about how so much of, of corporate America has, has lost its way. And and on the positive side, and I, I really want to try to stay positive. We come to the end of the year, and I, I really think Japan has, in some ways, a vaccine for for what ails us in the U.S. in terms of how capital markets um, can can actually function if, if 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 left to do their their job. You know, Hitachi starved of capital. Um, Many many years of, of of huge losses. They finally raise equity in two thousand and 2009, I think they raised a maybe it's 2010. They raised a third of their capital in, in new equity, and management. Um, Shoyama was replaced by Nakanishi, and and he came in and said, "We've got to get our returns up. We we just and these returns have to be real cash returns." 
and went through an excruciatingly painful process that, that took margins from 1% to 8%, that um, internationalized their board of directors, that got rid of their finance business, that exited their power business in ways that were um, incredibly innovative, not, not because of um, engineering so much as looking at doing a series of joint ventures and, and using their international board to extract themselves from some national projects that the Japanese government really wanted them to do um, on the shareholders nickel, including a, a nuclear plant in, um, in England and uh, a gigantic project in South Africa. And you contrast their policies and their decisions at Hitachi to those of their Japanese peer Toshiba, which which literally almost lost the company because of their their poor management of these deals. So you had you had this very interesting contrast within Japan of a of a of a big company doing the right thing, making hard choices, but doing so with very little fanfare. And if you look up Hitachi's management, there are no books written by these guys. There are no CNBC profiles. You contrast that with um, your, I think, business school partner, Jeffrey Amelt, who I will unhesitatingly throw under the bus for a just doing the opposite. You know, he there's a you can read his book, uh, which he wrote about how how great he is when he when he started the company, when he, when he took over, I think, in 2000. And that whole process of of managing earnings for the benefit of of executives, of executives taking credit for everything that goes right and taking no blame for anything that goes wrong. It's really the, the opposite of what's happening at, in Japan, where you'll have CEOs who, including Hitachi, who take credit uh, really for very little that goes right, but they take the blame for what goes wrong. And in the compounding effect of, of the Hitachi approach within the Japanese ecosystem, has been broadly positive, up to and including today. I mean, they just announced the sale of their Turkish business to uh, um, you know, an overseas competitor, or their international business to a international appliance business to a Turkish um, competitor who has much broader scale than than they do, and it's it's very consistent with their buying and selling over the last 15 years in a in a sensible cash flow driven way. It is the opposite of financialization. You know, Hitachi got out of its finance business. Um, GE cannot seem, the, you know, GE refuses to raise equity in a real way. Um, and, and that has had a major impact on their ability to invest in innovation, to invest in product. Um, and in Japan, you've had this, this, this opposite. And I think Hitachi is a great example of it. They, they got in financial trouble during the bubble, but they never lost their core manufacturing or technical expertise. And it's because the people who were sent to fix the businesses were not financial types. They were engineers. And that's that's true up and down the company. And it, or if it wasn't a, a technology company, it was a company like Calbee, a food company. They brought people in who were you know, business managers, not financial types. And and that is something that I think we can learn a lot from as we try to extricate ourselves from the mess that we're in right now. You just referenced engineers, and I think we can also learn a lot. I know you and I have over the years of studying some of the great engineers we've had on the U.S. corporate scene. Let's just do a little sidebar because I know you're friends with 
the, a remarkable gentleman who's now 84, Les Vidas, and um, who was, of course, one of the early hires uh, at Intel. But just tell a little tale, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, about your interactions with Les over the years, how Intel thought about balance sheet management in general and cash in particular, and how that's informed what you and John do with your own portfolio construction. Sure, and, and, and that's a great segue because, as you know, the the current CEO of um, of Intel is a is a he started his career in the finance department at GE, and then he ran Webvan, and um, he went to as a finance guy to to PayPal, and now he's 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 overseeing. Um, what I, I consider a, a, a just disastrous decline in, in U.S. competitiveness, one that Andy Grove, the, the founder of, and, and chairman of, of Intel, never would have happened, let happen. Um, and, and so Les, Les was the fourth employee of Intel. Like, like Andy Grove, he was a, a refugee from Hungary. He spent his youth, you know, he, was, he was a tank commander in the Hungarian army, and then he ended up in the U.S., um, or, or rather in, in Canada. And and in the in the darkest days of February and March, we I did some analysis on our, our companies, and, and our companies as a group had net cash and securities equivalent to two and a half years of SGNA, which was a metric that we looked at very hard because prior to March 23rd, um, you know there, there was real question about whether companies were going to be able to to survive um, if they didn't have cash on the balance sheet and, and and our companies have been criticized for for, for having too much um, when we when I did the analysis and I look back at Intel because Intel was a company we were considering and purchasing but their balance sheet had had deteriorated markedly and I look back at the years that Les and Andy ran Intel and their balance sheet in Intel always had interestingly two and a half years of SGNA they they had carried net cash forever and and I wrote Les and I said look we're Tell me about how we got at Intel from a position where you always were in position, able to to control your destiny, to one where you're at serious risk of of um, losing access to capital because your you know your your debt and the acquisitions you've you've made. And he it was it was so interesting because what he what he what it showed was that this this orthodoxy of optimizing the the, the balance sheet. Was was not the orthodoxy of, of U.S. companies um, even during their high growth period in, in the 90s. And and Les was, you know, he among other things, he was the head of Intel Capital, so he, had, he was very involved in a lot of these startup companies. He was not a just a number cruncher and or just an engineer. But what he said was, we never looked at Intel when we managed our balance sheet at at what the market said. We always wanted to have enough to get us through a rainy day. And we focused on growth, not financialization. Um, and Andy Grove wrote the book "Only the Paranoid Survive," and that's how they ran it. And I submit that the Japanese companies of today, Hitachi being a, a notable example, have a lot more in common with um, how U.S. companies were run when they were run well than, than frankly, a lot of the U.S. companies today do. Um, and I think the kind of the cultural, the mindset that, that Andy Grove and that Les Fidesz bring to are brought to, to running those companies 
it was this balance between real craftsmanship and engineering talent and financial acumen. And that balance um, has tilted a little bit, maybe too far in the U.S., but it's uh, it's it's just right in Japan as we see these companies where the you know the, you, they've they've said, hey, we've got to earn a decent return, but we can't lose sight of the fact that what what pays the bills here is is our expertise and our customers and our employees. It's not um, how well we run a spreadsheet or how much you know how we can optimize our return on invested capital for the next six months. So, Andrew, your, your comments about Intel and the way the company was run, I think, constitute a logical segue, as you put it so well at the beginning of the conversation, sort of three doors we can go through. We've talked a bit about macroeconomic. We've talked about the microeconomic or company specific. And then the third door that you constructed was sort of the, the social backdrop, if you will. And they're, of course, all interrelated and interwoven and in self-reinforcing in both a positive and a in a negative sense. But I thought what we would do for the remainder of the conversation is focus on that third door. We'll call it maybe the social backdrop. And I thought as an intro to that, I just want to read back to you a quote that you sent me some time ago, which I think is really apt. And we can then apply it to what's going on in Japan right now. And it ran as follows. Quote, the supreme irony would be if the very traditional features of Japanese capitalism which the classic argument has always seen as backward, will actually be cherished by those who abide them and adopted by those who do not. So what I want to ask you to do is talk about, and, and, and again, in a separate missive, you, you talked about, and I thought in a really compellingly interesting way, you talked about Nissan when Gohan was running it, SoftBank, uh, where, where Masasan is still running it, as sort of exceptions that prove the rule. Talk about those two companies against the backdrop of the quote that I've just read back to the audience. Sure, and that's that's a terrific quote by a terrific guy, Jonathan Alum, who just retired after 30 years, and anyone who, anyone who of, of really terrific commentary on the Japanese market. He's the only guy I've consistently read. I, I, I miss him, I admire him greatly, and anyone who is not, is not familiar with his work, I encourage you to check out his valedictory address in um, in the Financial Times from a few weeks ago, from which that quote was taken, and and Jonathan, like me, has has always been interested in the fact that people you know treat Japan differently and and in our financial market and and focus a lot on the negatives and and not so much on 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 the positives as we've been talking about. But in the you know there, there's another quote I would I would give from a Wall Street Journal editorial earlier this year. And it, it says, you know, the, the free market relies on the virtues, on virtues that the, that the market itself cannot provide. And I think that in the Japanese context, that has, has been proven. You know, these, these social characteristics, which are not uniformly positive, um, but the ideas of diligence, the idea of um, you know constant improvement. There's the Monazuri, the, the 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 this even even U.S. companies have have, have taken that uh, that from a manufacturing perspective and tried to apply it in to, to with with kind of mixed results. 
outside of Japan because it's so embedded in kind of the Japanese um, educational and social systems. And, and that is um, also something that reflects itself in the way executives work. You know, you, Japanese companies have been criticized for being um, so slow to change. And that is in many ways a valid criticism. But one of the strengths that comes from that is that the leaders feel deeply committed to the companies and to the societies in a way that uh, we who've been told that our primary focus is to manage our, our career, our outcome, that we, we maybe lose sight of. And so and compensation is an, is an obvious example. Um, I would say that, that Hitachi is one of the greatest um, workout in, deals in history, and yet the CEO is he's paid three to four million dollars a year. Now he gets other non-monetary compensation for sure, but the fact that this CEO pay ratio has not really changed in 40 years in Japan, and it has in the U.S., reflects uh, an understanding on the on the point of the elites that they're you know. They're going to either hang together or hang separately, and and they there isn't this feeling of entitlement at the executive level that I think has been so corrosive in the U.S. Um, and that that is a I think result of this Japanese society kind of view that finance is is a dirty business. It's a necessary evil as opposed to the objective to which we all should uh, aspire. Um, it's something I, I talk about a lot with my daughter who goes to the University of Chicago where everybody wants, you know, the end game is Goldman Sachs internships there, except for her little language department. Uh, you know, in Japan, you don't, you do not have that. There is no desire to be a money manager. There's no desire to be a chief financial officer. People want to, to, to make things, to serve others. And, and that generally, um, it causes a lot of problems and um, people not and, and having too much of a hierarchy and, and, and having to wait your turn. But in the very specific circumstances that we're in today with this big difference between the, the 1%, the, the, the decline of, of um, a lot of manufacturing excellence in, in so many areas because we don't have the right workforce, Japan has these social um, characteristics that are extremely valuable. And I think we see that in the way that they've sailed through this pandemic without any real challenges to either their their, their social fabric or to their their business fabric, really. I mean, they've, they've managed this very well. And I, I contrast that generic or general approach in Japan, which has, has has broadly improved at earnings and cash flow and all these other return on equity measurements without it's kind of move slow and don't break things is, is the, the motto for most companies. And I contrast that with, with the counter examples you mentioned, Nissan and, um, and SoftBank. And I, I was Carlos Ghosn's neighbor for six years, both in my first department and my second one. He, he was in the penthouse. We were down below and I had incredible admiration for what he did in his in his first few years at Nissan, and yet I also was I was directly involved because at the time we had shareholders in my old firm at both General Motors and at, at Renault, and I I know that there was an offer for him to go and be a CEO somewhere else. I know he could have made more money um, elsewhere, 
Um, what was distinctive and I, and I think ultimately um, destructive was his his sense of entitlement and his desire to uh, maximize his own personal outcome at really expense of anyone else. And it, it, it's a there's no Japanese. I have been lied to by CEOs all over the country. I've never all the world. Um, not all the time, but I, I, in other words, I don't say that Japanese managers always tell the truth, but never do they do something where they benefit at the expense of the company or their subordinates. They might lie to hide some accounting problem, but never, ever, ever would you see a Japanese CEO um, flee the country and and put the people who who get them in trouble who get them out of trouble in jail and yet that sort of um, mentality is unfortunately something that we you know, that also shows up at, at at SoftBank and so I think we're in this this real um, decision point in the Japanese market which way are we going to go you're told that these CEOs need to be uh, much more mercenary like um, you look at the behavior at SoftBank that uh, has been widely documented. Um, you know, you've taken the, the, the derivative team from SoftBank, from, from Deutsche Bank, put them in charge. They've, they've manipulated markets. They funded WeWork. They funded um, Wirecard. They've really been at the center of everything that is, I think, wrong about financialization. And yet they're the best performing stock in, in Japan. Um, what the big question for me is what what lessons are we going to take from this for for our existing Japanese managements as they continue to evolve? Um, obviously, you look at Nissan and the first five years that Carlos Ghosn was there, they wrapped wildly outperformed the Japanese competitors and, and global competitors. Today, they're barely profitable and their their credit rating is in trouble. They've they've there's you can, and then you contrast that with, with Honda and Toyota, where they don't have celebrity CEOs. They don't pay their executives that much money. And yet those companies are, are prospering today, even in the pandemic. And, and there's a lot there's a lot for me personally to reflect on, because I was a you know, I was a foot soldier in globalization. I was I spent the first 10 years of my life trying to get Japanese magnets to be more American presented to an insurance company that we had a big investment in. And, and um, the title of the pr presentation was why you should be more like AIG. You know, look at their capital allocation. You can learn a lot from them. When precisely was that? Is that before <laughs> Southeastern or after you joined the firm? No, no, this was, yeah. well, this would have been in 2006. Yeah. We had 20%, we owned about 20% of a Japanese insurance company and um, we were mad at them for, for for not optimizing the capital structure. And um, I went in and said, look, here's a big presentation to the whole board. And the the, the, the headline was why you should be more like AIG. And um, I, I learned a lot from that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I spent the last 10 years of my career wishing US managements were a little more like Japanese. And, and just put some some numbers around that. Um, you know, the, the 10 years um, prior to 2020, and somebody can check these, but I, I've, I've done the math with um, Ed Yardini's numbers and, and some Wall Street Journal reports. And, and I think the U.S. has basically bought back $4 trillion of, of 
there have been $4 trillion in stock buybacks against $2 trillion in, in, in net earnings or op, net operating earnings. So we've spent more than twice our, uh, our, our, our income on buybacks. In Japan, buybacks are up seven times in that same period. Yet cash flow is up even more in gross terms. So the Japanese companies are, they're, yes, they're buying back shares. They're, they're, their dividends have increased every year. That's our, our central thesis is that these companies that have net cash, that cash is going to be used for us for sure, but, but in a prudent way. So these Japanese companies today, our, our, our portfolio PE today is exactly the same as it was when we went to work for you at TIFF in 10, year, 10 years ago. And what that means is that all of the performance has, has been the coupons, the earning has not been multiple expansion. And, and that the quality of those earnings in Japan is even higher than apparent earnings. Whereas I would argue that the quality of earnings in the US, because so much of compensation is now run through the equity line, uh, this is something Michael Mobison has done, the quality of earnings in the US is, is is lower than it's ever been in Japan. It's actually higher than it's ever been, and um, and we see that in our portfolio. We see it in other companies as well. Although there's a lot more valuation dispersion as well now. So yeah. Hey Andrew, we've we've referenced a couple of times a really major inflection point in your career in 2010 when you decided to leave Southeastern with John and set up your own shop. Let's just go back. Normally, this is done at the front of these interviews, but by careful design, we didn't start with it. But let's go back and just sort of backfill briefly your career before you got to Southeastern, what it was like to be there. And then I want you to segue without any further interruption from me to some reflections that you've shared with me previously on the, 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 the current status and future of active management in general and value investing in particular. But take us back in time and walk through the arc of that personal history, personal and professional history, and and bring us up to those topics that I just flagged. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Well, sure. Thanks, David. Um, you know, I was, uh, I, I, I didn't know what money management was. My interest in Japan was, driv- was was really a result of the fact that I was, when I was young, I was a, a history buff. And, and I, my favorite topic was, was World War II and specifically the Pacific Theater. So um, Guadalcanal Diary and 30 Seconds Over Tokyo were my about all the introduction to Japan that I had and, and um, finance. I, I took an econ class in, in high school because I was uh, the first guy in the history of the school to be thrown out of the mixed choir. So there was no design and that was the only option. Um, there was no design um, to be involved in Japanese equities. And I think just as a broad point on the successful investors or the people that have been interesting in the field, I, I, I think that's a positive, not a negative. It's self-serving, I know, but this this ability to be detached both from the industry and from the specific market you're in, and to have a take it or leave it attitude, um, is vitally important. And um, and certainly that characterizes both John and Yohei, my partners. Yohei being by far the smartest of the group with a near PhD in, in artificial intelligence and 
He's just interested in a lot of things, among which are security selection. Likewise, John. Um, and so I went to Japan out of college my, I, because I wanted to um, leave the U.S. And I wasn't because I'd gone in college to travel around Europe and had a, had a great time exploring. I viewed myself as as a, as a latter day Richard Halliburton, who was a Memphian, who also went to Princeton. And then he wrote all these travel books, The Royal Road to Romance being the one that I had in my back pocket on the way to Japan. So I fell into finance at JP Morgan in Hong Kong, which was just fascinating because the people that I worked with there um, included, among others, Wei Jin Shan, who just did a um, an interview and for Real Vision, Tim Leisner, the, the guy at the center of 1MDB, uh, yep. I knew in passing, um, Jack Langloy, a, 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 a the guy who headed Morgan Stanley's efforts into into China and had been a professor of poetry and and Chinese poetry and then then a business leader, um, Deng Xiaoping's granddaughter, who happened to be one of the um, you know early J.P. Morgan national talent program that they ultimately were invited for. So it was it was a great way to fall into finance. But I only got I got the job because I was a computer guy. My my specialty was helping non-technical people get um, comfortable with computers. I worked in the computer lab to pay part of my tuition. So with all that is, the, I got into finance because I could use Excel at a time of, of transition from Lotus to Excel. And then I ended up wanting to work in venture capital in, in San Francisco. And so I, by just total luck, ended up leaving the week before the Thai bot collapsed in 1998 and, and going to, uh, or 97, I guess, um, going to San Francisco. And from there, got a call from a friend who was had been offered a job at Southeastern to go look at for Japanese equities. And he decided not to take the job, but recommended that they talk to me. And I, you know, I decided to take the job. The main reason I took the job was because we bid for a houseboat in San Francisco and lost it and had no place to live. And um, we had some personal reasons. My wife's Japanese and, and her her dad was not doing very well at the time. And we were willing to commute between Memphis and Japan at a time when no one else was. That was a, that was a so the you know, going where they're not is, is really the theme of, of, of everything that um, has has driven my career and, and just luck. Um, so when I got to Southeastern, it was two months before Jason's week wrote a report, wrote a paper in Money Magazine calling Southeastern the best mutual fund management company in the world. And it was a terrific piece. And it was, yeah, and, and I think it was accurate um, in many ways, because what what my bosses were doing, they, were, they truly were investing their own money. And they were also willing to take an opportunity based on where they wanted to put their own money, even though no one else was doing it. This was a time when the S&P was outperforming global markets in a way that's very consistent, Dave, with your framework. It's creating this today saying, hey, the U.S. is great, but it's overpriced relative to the rest of the world. And IFA had underperformed the S&P for, I don't know, 15 years or something, some crazy number. Um, so Southeastern, to their credit, said, let's start an international fund right now and let's center it on Japan, which is under, you know, it's the most underperforming market in an underperforming world. We just, in a, the analysis is not that hard. We just need somebody to go do that legwork because we have a fiduciary du duty to our existing investors to keep doing what we're 
what we're managing. And I, and I think that in retrospect, looking back on the lessons I've, I've learned from that and which, which later informed in our, our creation of, of mission value partners and looking at other partnerships like, like Nomad and, and um, others that have been successful, I think those ingredients were really important. First of all, there was a, a clear opportunity to invest your own money in a market that if you spent your own time doing it, you could, you could make it work, but, but you had some other responsibilities. And so then you hired someone and, and that meant that there are all sorts of good things that happen from that because you're hiring someone in an environment where there's a lot to do. That person can very quickly demonstrate the ability to demonstrate whether they can do the work or not. Um, there's a there's a training opportunity that you can supervise. In my favorite sport, we call that at bats. I know your favorite sport is not my favorite sport, but back to you. Well, that's right. That's exactly right. There were a lot of at bats, and there was and and there was kind of a um, you could put your training wheels on because as as John John Buford didn't want to hire me. I mean, my partner now he he just I was the exhaustion choice. We'd offered the job to six or seven people before I got, it. and this is. To, to, to go to this this value investing topic, um, there's just a sea change. At that time, I didn't know what a mutual fund was. I didn't know what value investing was. I didn't, it, it just wasn't a thing. And today, it's still a thing. And I, I know people, it, it's a huge thing. Even though the performance is bad, they're, 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 they're value investing programs at all these schools. There's just a lot of people who are very well trained in the discipline. They're just no one was interested in '98, and that's a good thing. Um, they offered me the job and said, "Look, I don't know if we'll even do this six months from now. It, we may have to shut this thing down, but it looks like it'll work." And 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 that was a great, in retrospect, that was a great environment um, to learn from and to be part of. Now, of course, just like Japan, getting a lot worse from 2010 to 2011. The environment for international investing got a lot worse from 1998 to 2000 because we that was I left tech venture investing in San Francisco in 1998 just at really it looked like the dumbest career move in history for value investing you know uh, and also in 1998 and got to watch this incredible melt up which felt a lot then the way it feels today, where you're just looking at this flows over fundamentals and you couldn't believe it. Uh, and it was, but I learned an enormous amount from that experience too, of how bad it can get before it gets good. Um, and it got really, really bad. And clients firing us, telling it, going to the grocery store, having to wear a baseball cap because you were the, the dumb guy. Um, it was a very much a, um, Everybody knew you in those days, um, especially in a town like Memphis. How did that play out? Well, it, it, it played out beautifully because when everything fell apart, we didn't look like the rest of the market. And uh, I think we outperformed by 52% or some crazy number. I, I, I don't, don't hold me to it. But, but looking back, it wasn't that we were, as analysts, um, that much better. It was that the environment was that much better. And I think moving forward to today, uh, you got a lot of really, I think, well-intentioned people who are working very hard. But um, as, as Charlie Ellis and Charlie Munger and, and Jeremy Grantham have all pointed out much more eloquently than I can, uh, we're, we're squeezing blood from the stone um, and there are fewer 
there are fewer equities out there. Those that are out there are not, um, they don't get as cheap as they used to, unless you're willing to take a lot more risk. And it's, it's a very crowded trade. Now that's all, that's been the experience for the last 10 years. Within Japan, there, we've been able to still exercise our discipline. Um, it's much, much harder for those of us who are actually practitioners throughout this entire period to say that you can still do what we did in today's conditions with, with any real conviction. Um, now that's, I think there's a relative value trade that's developed very recently just because we've gone so off the rails, but that, that gets into a bigger picture of whether these financial markets can, can perform their basic function of capital allocation and, um, and price discovery in, as well as this public function that Ben Hunt's talked about of, you know, if it's trying, we're trying to create social outcomes through this financial market, we can't also expect it to, to reward value investors for, for doing what we do. And that, that I think is a central issue. And I think Japan has a lot of good lessons that we can learn that if we let this thing play out, it, it can over time work, but it's very much an open question. So Andrew, I want to close with two more questions. One, more professional, but it leads to the closing question, which is more personal. Um, so the first of the two questions relates to China. We haven't really talked about it much, if at all. If I'm not mistaken, you've never invested a penny in the stocks of China-based, China-domiciled companies. Just share with us and with the audience, if you will, your sort of evolving take on what's going on in China, looked at through the lens of, a, of an active stock picker. Well, you know, I, I mourn what's happened in Hong Kong, having lived there, having it, it was an important part of my early life. Obviously, it's where I've, I've, I fell into finance. Um, and at the time in 1994, um, it was just brimming with optimism. And you, my, my job was to really be the kind of the executive assistant for a group of, of J.P. Morgan senior bankers. And I'd go into that Monday meeting, and I, and I hate Monday meetings, as you know, because I think they sometimes create perverse incentives to do stuff you wouldn't otherwise. But it was a great learning experience. There's so much happening. And, we, and, and, and when I started at Southeastern, our first investments actually were in China. They were Swire Pacific and, um, and then later um, Chong Kong. But but they were they were in Hong Kong and they were very much with the view towards what what I think was a commonly held view that that financial markets were going to evolve towards a U.S. model and you could in, invest in Hong Kong and have um, really the best of both worlds governance and um, that you could understand and and be comfortable with and access to this very real and obvious growing cash flow stream coming out of of China. Um, but I also, you know, I, I worked on deals, uh, and I was not one of the luckiest things for me. I was really a very bad investment banker because most of the divisions I was in were, we didn't close that many deals, but we worked on a lot of them, whether it was the tech banking at JP Morgan or the infrastructure banking in, 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 in Hong Kong, where I, where I cut my teeth. What I learned is that even if you're working, even if you're JP Morgan, the biggest bank in the world, and you've got your private equity group and everyone else behind you, and you're going to talk to people like Bechtel, and you're coming to invest in a, in our case, it was a bridge and tunnel project with a government guarantee of foreign exchange. And we put all the money, we did years of due diligence on it. The deal closed after I left. Well, it turned out that 
the government reneged on the on the transaction and, and they didn't give that currency and the whole thing collapsed. Now, there have been a lot of examples. Wage and shine is is is, is there to to prove that that it can be done, that these transactions can happen, that you can make money. And I know a lot of people have done so, but for an individual investor with his own money at risk, you, one of the things that Ben Graham wrote about was that you have to understand when you're investing whether you're actually, whether your skill set can overwhelm chance or not. And and from our perspective, we don't have even the most basic rights as individual shareholders, as equity owners. Now, I've personally been involved in many situations in Japan where it's management's gone against us and we have had a legal framework in which we can enforce our rights. My experience and observation in Japan, in China rather, is that for all the wonderful things that happen, unless you have the type of political connection that Wei Jinshan has, um, you're kidding yourself if you think that you really own equity there. Um, and I would include the large tech stocks. I would use what's happened at, at Alibaba and Alipay as an example. You know, that, that business was extracted with very little compensation from Alibaba. And then it was trying to, you know, when they tried to list it, the Chinese government came in and stopped that. I, I just, you know, you're partnering with the, with the Chinese government, something that I personally don't want to do. That's a, you know, that's a, that's a value judgment that's different from my analytical judgment which is I don't have the ability to put capital to work and let the markets close and not worry about it the way that I would like to in, in China. And so therefore, as a public equity investment, it's not one that, that I can sleep at night with. Um, knowing though that it's obviously there's a lot of activity in that market um, that purely as an investor is of great interest. Now, there's a whole social and political dimension that's deeply concerning to me, but I think is outside perhaps the realm of this discussion. Great. So the question I want to finish with, I said it's a personal question, but you just mentioned the, the social and political dimensions. We can talk about what's going on here in the U.S. We don't have time for that. We do need to let you go. But the, the closing question I want to put to you publicly is one that you and I have explored privately. So you have four children. I beat you by 20%. I have five, our two youngest. The boys, both now 10, are almost exactly the same age. And the question I've put to you in, uh, previously is, what are the probabilities that any of your children will settle permanently in the birthplace of their mom in, your, in, in Japan? You know, I knew this would come up, and I, we, we, we talked about this over dinner a couple of nights ago, and I'd say they're high. Um, Certainly, they're high and they're increasing. Um, my eldest daughter spent a lot of time there. She worked there during her gap year. Um, I don't think it's, you know, the, the 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 price value proposition that U.S. private colleges are providing is is vis-a-vis -vis colleges almost anywhere else in the world, but particularly in Japan, um, that's that's deteriorating rapidly. Um, and the opportunities to be in a place where you can look at your opportunities in this in a society that where stability all of a sudden is much more important than than it's ever been. I think you look at major cities around the globe and there's no place you would prefer. There's no place that's done better than Tokyo over the last 
12 months, 18 months, 24 months. Uh, that's reflected a bit in our portfolio um, in that you know, we, we own a lot of central Tokyo real estate that all of a sudden is becoming a place that companies want to relocate to because they feel like they can live a life of liberty and, and leisure is a wrong word, but but of, of, of freedom and, and, and convenience and still have access to all these things that are culturally stimulating and, and admirable. It's one of the things that's been very interesting over my career is that as Japan has become a smaller and smaller piece of our financial universe, it's become a bigger and bigger piece of the cultural universe, whether it's food, um, you know, cuisine, oh, well, I'm sorry, food or, or fashion or um, entertainment or travel, 30 million visitors. It's a great, it's a really interesting place to be in a place that for my children, um, I think would be a wonderful spot. And and that's not just for our kids, our, our neighbor's um, daughter has been there for, for the last year and, and is, um, you know, dating a Japanese guy. I think this, this internationalization of Japan, which started with my boss who in Fukushima-san, when I first went to Japan, he met me, he said, Andrew, I'm glad you're here. The first Americans I saw were, were the pilots of B-29s. I chased them with a pitchfork over a rice field. My father was on Yamamoto's staff in the Navy, and he was in charge of, of, of evacuating Japanese troops from Guadalcanal. And yet there's this commonality now between America and Japan, and that's why I hired you, and that's why you know, we're there's a lot to build on there. And I, and I think that in the best of senses, um, uh, as you know, John Glove is a historian. I've been reading a lot recently. He talks about these, these life cycles of empires. And I think we're in this position where both the U.S. and, and Japan, almost they need each other. And um, I'm hopeful that that, uh, for, my, for my own kids, that that provides some, perhaps some interesting opportunities where they can contribute to that in a, in a positive way. Andrew, like every conversation I've ever had with you, I've learned a lot from this one, and I hope the the Real Vision audience did too. Thank you so much for your time. Likewise, David. Have a um, have a great end of the year. Talk to you soon. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com.